Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You know, in New York, like Rikers Island, it costs around $200,000 a year to keep somebody locked up. Now, per, per that's you, per, per person. Inmate. Yeah, you know what the Four Seasons cost in New York City, the Ritz-Carlton, about six, $700 a night. And then some people will say, well, in other parts of the country, it may not be as expensive. Okay, let's take a different number. Let's take a number like $50,000 a year. You say, okay, well, in um, parts of the Midwest or here or there, the cost is, is, you know, is less for various different reasons we don't have to get into. The cost of locking somebody, okay, 50. So that's the cost. You can put them in a Holiday Inn for that, right? That breaks down to about $140 a night. There was a story that uh, a New Hampshire corrections officer said to me um, while I was on the trail, when I was running. He hmm. said, we should pay people to stay out of jail because we are putting so much on them when they're behind bars. And this is some worked in the system and just saw uh, saw where the money was going every day. And he said this to me, like the trail, like even someone who's part of the system was like, yeah, we should we should be sent to the Holiday Inn is what he was, he was suggesting because, uh, you know, like we're doing it wrong. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, the founder of Lava Media, one of the founding board members of the Innocence Project, and the host of the Wrongful Conviction podcast, which speaks for itself. Mr. Jason Flom, welcome, Jason, to Yang Speaks. Thank you. Thank you. I am uh, uh, honored, actually, to be here, and I don't say that lightly. I, I am a big fan of your work and uh, super excited to speak with you today. And uh, yeah, let's go, man. I'm psyched. I'm a fan of your work, a super fan. I feel like you're one of the reasons why the vast majority of Americans are waking up to the reality of how messed up our criminal justice system is. Uh, and you just joined the board of the Frederick Douglass Project that is helping to make uh, that case. You've been in this, uh, I want to say, for decades. Uh, you started uh, going down this path before it was cool, really. You're one of the people that have woken up so many of us. How did you get involved with this work back in the 90s? Oh, well, thanks for asking. I, um, it, it was very random, or maybe not. Maybe it was just serendipity, I guess you could say. But as it happens, this particular day, I was uh, getting in a taxi, and there was a newsstand, and I wanted something to read in the cab. And uh, the Times was sold out, which was my paper and is my paper of choice. I live in New York. And uh, the New York Daily News was there, so I grabbed that. 
and I was obviously meant to grab it because there was a story and the headline was something like uh, Ferraro bid for cocaine kid parole or something like that, right? So it was Geraldine Ferraro they were talking about, who of course was the first woman ever nominated to be vice president for, by a major political party uh, when Walter Mondale was running. And the story was about a kid named Stephen Lennon who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in New York state. And I know, yeah, exactly, right? I see your face and I'm sure people at home are like, no, it, shut up, you're stupid. What are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. So I'll just repeat it because it doesn't make sense, but it's true. 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in New York State. It was the Rockefeller drug laws. So I read this story and I, everything I thought, uh, everything was out the window. My sense of fairness and equity and, and justice uh, were all just tipped upside down and shaken out. And I was like, I, I have to do something. This is insane. I had had my own substance abuse problems as a kid. And, um, you know, I'm not a religious guy, but I was just like there, but for the grace of God go, I or so many people I know. And so make a long story short, I ended up getting uh, the only criminal defense lawyer I knew. And I knew him from my day job running a record company, right? Uh, or working at a record company. Because two artists I had signed, Skid Row and Stone Temple Pilots, were clients of this guy. Bob Kalina, and they were, it seemed like they were getting arrested twice a week in those days. So I had him on speed dial. So I called Bob, I asked him if he could help. He said it was hopeless, it was a Rockefeller drug law, there's nothing you could do, but he took the case pro bono because I was a good client. And six months later, we ended up in a courtroom in Malone, New York, and um, the judge banged the gavel down and, and sent this kid home. Um, and it was the greatest feeling, I can't describe it. I mean, I was sitting there holding Mrs. Lennon's hand when her son was freed. And um, I was like, now that's, I want more of that. I want, I want that feeling. And I'm going to do everything I can to repeat that as often as I can for as long as I live. And what year was that? That was 93, Andrew. So um, it's a long time ago. And um you know, and that led me to joining the board of, I read about Families Against Mandatory Minimums in Rolling Stone magazine at that time. And so I joined their board. That was the first organization uh, who I joined up with. Wonderful organization, still doing fantastic work, as, as you know. Uh, but for people who aren't aware, FAMM.org, check it out. Amazing. Um, and then soon after that, I saw something on television about a, a case that the Innocence Project had recently won where they had prevented this gentleman from getting executed and proven that he was in fact actually innocent and he was freed. And I thought that is the, I didn't even know about that. I was like, it never occurred to me because this is 93, 94, whatever it was. It wasn't in the media like this. It is now, you know, they, wrongful convictions weren't a thing people talked about it. You know, I, I thought somebody's guilty. They must be guilty, but um, little did I know. So, you helped free this uh, this kid. Uh, he was is he 16 years old, or like, uh, how old was he? That like, uh, Mr. Lennon. He was 32 when I learned of his case. He had already been in prison for over eight years at that time. And um, oh gosh, yeah. So uh, he was the and, same age as I was. So you have your big shot lawyer essentially be like, yo, do this thing. And he's like, all right, I'll do this thing because uh, you, you, <laughs> you're like a good client and, and our practice makes a lot of money. So we'll do this as a feel good thing. Uh, so how the heck does he get in there and six months later, the judge hangs the gavel and, um, uh, and sets, 
um, this inmate free? Like, how, like, is he a wonder lawyer or, or was it just the no, fact that no, someone no. was chasing it? I don't think he's not alive anymore, um, but he's he was a, a wonderful guy. Uh, I don't know if he's a wonder lawyer. He wasn't a famous lawyer or anything like that. I think he, you know, maybe he was looking for a pro bono case around that time. Um, and, you know, the crazy thing, there's so many crazy things with this particular case, but it's far from unique. So Stephen Lennon had been in his car with a friend and they stopped on the side of the road to urinate. And I guess an officer had seen him doing that and then, you know, to approach the car, search the car, found 4.2 ounces of cocaine under the seat. Now, it's not a small amount, but it's also, he's not El Chapo, right? So um, he, both kids denied, uh, you know, possession of it. And so both of them were charged with the full amount because that's how the law works. And in New York state, the Rockefeller drug laws mandated that possession of anything over four ounces was an A1 felony. So it's the same as murder. And doesn't get higher than A1. And so the, and the problem is whoever's in the car, the whole thing, it'll split it. It belongs to you. All of it belongs to you. And so both kids were, went to trial and they, you know, they were tried and convicted. And, um, and Mrs. Lennon had been trying to get Governor Cuomo, which was Mario Cuomo, right? uh, Andrew Cuomo's father, to grant clemency to Mr. Lennon to her son and had letters written from the sentencing judge and the warden and Geraldine Ferraro and all these people. And this was a, just a, a homemaker from Rome, New York, but she wanted her son home, you know, a mother's love. And uh, so it was, it was an extraordinary situation because she had just been turned down. And that's why the story was in the newspaper that I happened to read. But so Bob came up with an angle. The other kid had, had nothing to do with it, in fact. And after Stephen was convicted, he wrote letters saying, listen, it was not the other kid. The other kid had nothing to do with it. I was just giving him a ride. It was mine. Uh, and they said, too late. You know, we're not concerned with that anymore. So the other kid eventually was allowed to plead down to an A2, um, meaning two to possession of two to four ounces. So Bob went in with the legal... Um, uh, uh, approach, I guess, uh, uh, angle where he said, hey, you can't charge the two kids differently for the same crime. Um, and if the other kid was allowed to plead down to an A2, my client should be able to do the same thing. And I didn't think we had a snowball's chance in hell. I didn't know anything about the law back then. But, you know, I knew that the judge was an old guy with white hair. He looked like Ted Forsythe, if anybody remembers that actor. And I thought, this looks like a conservative guy no way are we winning this case. But he banged that gavel down, Andrew, and said the motion is granted. And then Bob came running over and I was like, what happened? And he goes, we won. I was like, we what? He's like, we won. I was like, get the, get, I don't know if I can curse on here, but I was like, get the F out of here. You, you, you can curse on Yang Speaks. <laughs> okay, so I was like, get the fuck out of here. That's incredible. And so, um, so yeah, the uh, actually it's funny. I, I was just going through my drawers. I have a picture of of Stephen and his uh, and his mother right right over there, uh, a few feet away from me. Um, so that's that's Stephen Lennon right there. No, and his mom. Uh, wow. Yeah, and that's his mom. That's his mom Shirley right next to him. And then uh, this woman, this amazing woman, is Julie Stewart, who founded uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Um, so yeah, it was a wonderful experience, and it was transformative for me. And you've had that experience now uh, many times. And you said, like, I want that experience again. How many people have you helped facilitate uh, the freedom of uh, from a wrongful conviction? 
Well, interestingly enough, his wasn't a wrongful conviction. Stephen was in fact guilty, oh, yeah. but he was he, he was a mandatory sentencing case. Um, and those are uh, I've been involved in a lot of those. Um, and and I don't know. I've lost track of how many people I've helped. And it also depends on, you know, many cases. I'm just a small part of the of the, you know, the team team yeah right um in in with the podcast you know uh, uh wrongful conviction we're shining a light on on some of these cases and we've been very very blessed to have played a uh, a little part in helping a few people fr- that have been on the podcast actually get the attention that they needed and um you know i've been told by people involved that it had some little percentage to do with their ultimately winning their freedom. And if, even if it's 1%, I'm thrilled. Um, so I don't know how many, uh, you know, I've worked on, on clemencies at the presidential and gubernatorial levels. Um, I've worked on uh, cases with, um, you know, connecting pro bono lawyers and probably some are listening now that might want to get involved. I hope um, with people who, you know, who need help. And of course, then serving in my role as a board member uh, at the Innocence Project and these other organizations, you know, there's countless uh, people who have been freed, but those I I have, you know, I'm really in the background to say, you know, I mean, the lawyers are the ones doing the work um, and I want to take nothing away from that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm very- I get it, man. You, You can't be like, I did this, but it's like I touched or helped out with, it sounds like dozens, hundreds of cases. Yeah, I mean, yeah, hundreds. Some of them I've had the chance to be, you know, more personally connected to. Um, and some of those people are people like I know. And, you know, I've also got a very large sort of family, I guess you could call it, of exonerees and others who I've, um, who I've gotten to know through the work, even after they got out, even cases I had nothing to do with. Of the things that have changed my life through <laughs> Yang Speaks, I'd have to say the Unagi scooter is either number one Agreed. or tied for number one. It's this freaking Tesla of electric scooters where you get it and you zip around. Um, it, it, it feels like a magic carpet. My kids are so envious because they're not big enough to ride it yet. Um, I don't know if this says something about my parenting, but uh, now uh, the older one I do stick on. Uh, the scooter in front of me and then I I whiz around on it Uh, but it makes you feel like you're in the future it's environmentally friendly you just plug it in if you live in the city it will transport you where you want to go you know without having to to struggle with um, public transportation Uh, it's beautiful it's slick everyone looks at it and is like what is that that's the Unagi scooter for you I can't speak highly enough about it Uh, we got a second one and then now when someone visits me, like the two of us go around, like we're in this really uh, futuristic scooter gang where we just like whiz around and uh, generally just have a blast. We even went out at night uh, because these things have these headlights um, that really make you seem like a UFO. Um, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know if you've done that, Zach. Have you done that? I've gone at night. Um, I, in, in New York, it is awesome to ride because it's faster than the bike's generally speaking, um, or the regular, the slow city bikes, um, and faster than runners. Uh, I, I love it. It's not that heavy either. It's like, it's like 25 pounds or so. Uh, I think 26 pounds, the exact weight, but it looks good, folds up. It's beautiful. Um, you can, 
basically you have like 20 miles of range. Um, and they actually, this is fun because it's actually just won an award. CNET gave it best all around electric scooter and then it won its first place for the best electric scooter by uh, Tom's Guide. So it's not just us starting to rave about this thing, it's real. Yes, and right now for a limited time, you can get $150 off for the holidays. This is the lowest price they will have for the next year. So check them out now, you will be glad, you will be grateful. This, <laughs> this thing's a real game changer. You can get yours today at unagiscooters.com. That's U-N-A-G-I scooters.com. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. It seems to me that you're a person who stands not just for common sense solutions to modern day problems, but also for a basic fundamental fairness and equity amongst people regardless of their background anyone hearing that story about these two people who were thrown in jail now one of them you know might have just been a passenger in a car and like you know might not even have known that uh, there was cocaine in the seat or like what the heck you know they're listening to this and just thinking like what uh what an inhuman way to treat someone really like I i'm i'm for humanity jason and i think folks instinctively know that at least the now they know uh that are criminal justice system has been dehumanizing folks in different ways for a long time. Yes. I'm glad you said it that way. We, we have, uh, you know, uh, along with the wrongful conviction podcast on our feed, we have two other wonderful shows. One is called uh, false confessions, wrongful conviction, false confessions. Another one's called wrongful conviction, junk science. And on the first episode of the first season of junk science, we had a guy named Chris Fabricant, who is the, um, uh, strategic litigation director at the Innocence Project, um, and he he said the justice system, which we call it a legal system, and I can't really call it a justice system. There's so little justice in it, but he said it's an effective killing machine of mostly poor people of color, um, and you know it's really true. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. But 
The fact is the system is so bloated and broken. And, you know, I've focused a lot on what I call the second punishment, which is, and by that I mean what, the way we treat people, the way we stigmatize and discriminate against people after they've served time in the system, innocent or guilty, which is exactly backwards of how other, many other civilized countries do it and exactly back, the opposite of how we should do it. Um, we should be providing a, a ramp and a, and a lift for people coming out so that they can get back on their feet, so they can help their families, so they can pay taxes, so they can integrate back into society in a way that is, you know, fair and, and helpful to everyone. And, and, you know, it is interesting too, I think that, um, and of course we do the opposite. We, 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 we discriminate against them in every conceivable way. Um, consciously and subconsciously and, you know, in, in practically and, you know, in all, in all kinds of ways. But um, it's, it's incredible that, that, you know, the, the amount of money that it costs us as a society. And I think this is one of the reasons why conservatives and, and liberals and people in the middle are aligned on this issue, almost at the exclusion of every other one, right? I mean, it's hard to think of any, issues where there is any sort of agreement, whether it's the environment or this or healthcare. There's bipartisan support around this in a way that's uh, somewhat distinct, I agree. Yes, and it's, you know, a libertarian, uh, a true libertarian is going to believe in small government and is going to believe that we should not be doing things the way we're doing them. Um, and anybody, I think with, um, you know, with a strong sense of common sense or humanity um, is going to agree with most of the things that you and I are talking about today, I think, because, you know, we have a system where, and we'll get to the economics in a minute, but when you consider the fact that we have 2.2, 2.3 million people in, in prison, and while we're sitting here right now, in, behind bars, in these tiny cells, um, forgetting COVID, but being subjected to extreme deprivation and hardships, deprived of sunlight, deprived of, of, of their families, deprived of the ability to work, contribute to the community, go to church, deprived of exercise, deprived of love, deprived of everything. And it's this over-incarceration that has um, taken the place of slavery or is a continuation of slavery, as people who read the new Jim Crow would know or, or, or watch 13th. Um, and it doesn't have to be this way. And it never was this way. It never was this way in America before. And it never was this way in any other country before. And I know that number is, is hard to conceptualize, 2.3 million. And it's hard to think about the 4.5 million people that are under the control of the system because of parole and probation. But you can think of the numbers like this. We lock people up, Black people up in America, at six times the rate of South Africa during apartheid per capita. Now, every time I say that, I take a step back and I go, go Flam, you sound like an idiot. Go research that again, because that doesn't make any sense. But it's true. You can research it as many times as you want. It's still going to be true. We, we lock people up at five times the rate of the rest of the Western world per capita, 14 times the rate of Japan. And at what cost? Right. I mean, forget the human toll for a minute. Forget the fact that every day about approximately 12 people die in our jails and prisons in America. Not too many from natural causes. You know, we see the George Floyds. We see the, the things that are happening in the streets, but we don't see the people who are dying or being killed inside the jails and prisons in America. And it's all too common. 
And then you get under the hood and you look at the costs, right? Just the pure economics of it. You know, in New York, like Rikers Island, it costs around $200,000 a year to keep somebody locked up. Now, per, per, that's you, per, per person. Inmate. Yeah. You know what the Four Seasons cost in New York City? Ritz Carlton, about six, $700 a night, you know, except maybe in the super high season, you know, maybe during fashion week or if the Grammys are here. I'm sure it's cheap. I'm sure it's going to be cheaper now. <laughs> so maybe, so maybe we could put someone up at the, at the Four like Seasons our hotel for the same, uh, same cost. And then some people will say, well, in other parts of the country, it may not be as expensive. Okay, let's take a different number. Let's take a number like $50,000 a year. You say, okay, well, in um, parts of the Midwest or here or there, the cost is, is, you know, is less for various different reasons we don't have to get into. The cost of locking somebody, okay, 50. So that's the cost. You can put them in a Holiday Inn for that, right? That breaks down to about $140 a night. There was a story that uh, a New Hampshire corrections officer said to me um, while I was on the trail when I was running. He said, hmm. we should pay people to stay out of jail because we are putting so much on them when they're behind bars. And this is some worked in the system and just saw, uh, saw where the money was going every day. And he said this to me, like the trail, like even someone who's part of the system was like, yeah, we should, we should be sent to the Holiday Inn is what he was, he was suggesting because, uh, you know, like we're doing it wrong. And did you tell him, hey, by the way, I'm the guy that's trying to do that. I'm trying to give people a thousand bucks a month. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think he did know that at that point. <laughs> You're like, uh, yeah, so I'm doing was, that, boss. Yeah, I'm that yeah, guy. I'm doing my best. I, I used to tell the story, Jason. I said, look, if someone comes out of jail and they were bringing a thousand bucks a month with them, and that person would have like a, a much better chance of reintegrating uh, and uh, being put in situations where they wouldn't feel like they uh, ever want to, you know, go anywhere near prison again, and and have a better chance of, uh, uh, you know, avoiding that. So I, you know, that but the cost is something you're right that unifies people because when people hear the numbers, they're like, no way. Yeah, then that's our tax dollars being paid. And I mean, the, the you know, the, the numbers, you can break it down any way you want. And it's just, it's all insane. But, you know, we have basically one out of every four people in prison in the world is in prison in America. But we only have like 4.4% of the world's population. So that, I mean, it's interesting because Senator Jim Webb, who was a Republican, you know, was a, well, he was a Democrat when he was a senator, but he was the defense secretary under Ronald Reagan. So he's no, no lefty uh, liberal guy, right? But he studied our prison system extensively, and he studied the Japanese prisons extensively. He spent a lot of time over there. Um, and he found that they had, at that time, about 70,000 people in prison in Japan, pretty big country, Japan. Um, you know, somewhere between a third and half the size of America in terms of population, right? Um, and so he was looking at it and saying, how come the crime rates are the same or similar? There doesn't seem to be any real benefit to society of locking people up the way we do. And so he said, the conclusion that I came to was that there's only two possible ways to look at this. Either we have the worst people in the world and they need to be treated this much more harshly than everybody else, or we're doing it wrong. 
it's like, you know, the conclusion, the obvious conclusion is we all are the worst people in the world. We just treat them worse than we treat other people in the world. And the problem is it starts the moment you're arrested. That's when we turn you, and I think it's because of the bloat of the system, right? You have so many, 11 million people go in and out of jail every year in America, right? 11 million. What kind of crazy, I know it's too big of a number for most people to conceptualize, but it's easy if it happens to you. And the problem is jail is a barbaric place. I mean, it is, um, I think, you know, Victor Hugo would be horrified by what he would see if he saw our jails. And I think as in general, people think of jail as a more benign word than prison. Prison sounds like maximum security prison. And it's terrible, I'm not minimizing that. But jails in this country are generally worse, more dangerous, never cleaned, no recreation, mixing of people who are not, haven't been tried with people who are already found guilty, gang members with people who were picked up from minor, you know, minor things, jumping a turnstile or God knows what. And as, as such, it's an extremely dangerous place. And they're powder kegs for, for disease, not just disease, but for people are many in many jails, people are crammed into cells, multiple people in one cell. Um, you know, it's, it's a really, terrible scenario and that's partially because our bail system is so out of step with the rest of the world it's clear that we're just criminalizing poverty it's like you you ran afoul of a particular um rule and you can't pay the fine or you you know the or you can't uh, like afford the the penalties uh that there have been uh, a lot of instances where folks have been not tried but are just put in jail and then are just in jail interminably because uh, that like they can't afford to uh, to pay a fine or make bail or do something that that would give them their freedom, uh, and that seems wrong to just about anyone who looks at it. And it's like, wait a minute, this person has not been tried and convicted, and they're just behind bars indefinitely. Indefinitely, yeah, years and years and years. I mean, cases uh, have gone on as long as ten years without a trial. And and you know, Khalif Browder, rest in peace, was in jail in Rikers Island for three years in New York for allegedly stealing a backpack. No weapons, no guns, no no nothing, no drugs, he, no priors. He just was a kid, and he didn't do it. But that's even out the window. His bail was twenty five hundred dollars, and he couldn't post it. And that's why now I think that these bail funds are playing a really important role. And I'm very proud to have been a part of the original bail fund, which was the Freedom Fund in the Bronx, which was designed to prevent tragedies like Khalif Browder from happening at all. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private 
internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. You know, I, I would like, if it's all right with you, Andrew, I want to read just a little a paragraph because I think this really crystallizes the situation in, in a way that I'm not eloquent enough to do. So this is by Alec Karakatsanis. This is an excerpt from a book called Usual Cruelty, which I think everyone should, uh, uh, you know, take a chance to read. If you, if you get a chance, it's, um, it's a profound uh, searing indictment of our system, but it also is a look underneath uh, places that they people don't typically look. And, and Alec is a guy, he's the founder of the Civil Rights Corps, um, and he has been suing cities and counties around the country and winning, um, including places like Houston, on the legal premise that money bail is a violation of the Sixth and the Fourteenth Amendments, right? It's not, you can't call it equal protection or due process when a poor guy and a wealthy guy or a guy with money both get picked up for the same crime on the same day, but one goes home and one stays in jail. That's, it's, it's, it makes a mockery of those two amendments to the Constitution. And so this is the first, uh, this is the opening of the book, which I'm going to read you now. On January 26, 2014, Charnel Mitchell was sitting on her couch with her one-year-old daughter on her lap and her four-year-old son to her side. Armed government agents entered her home, put her in metal restraints, took her from her children, and brought her to the Montgomery City Jail. Jail staff told Charnel that she owed the city money for old traffic tickets. The city had privatized the collection of the, her debts to a for-profit probation company, which had sought a warrant for her arrest. I happened to be sitting in the courtroom on the morning that Charnel was brought to court, along with dozens of other people who had been jailed because they owed the city money. The judge demanded Charnel pay or stay in jail. If she could not pay, she would be kept in a cage until she sat out her debts at $50 per day, or at $70 per day if she agreed to clean the courthouse bathrooms and the feces, blood, and mucus from the jail walls. An hour later, in a windowless cell, Charnel told me that a jail guard had given her a pencil, and she showed me the crumpled court document on the back of which she had calculated how many more weeks of forced labor separated her from her children. That day, she became my first client as a civil rights lawyer. So that's where our tax dollars are going, is to send a team of people to rip this woman away from her two children because she owed money for old traffic tickets. Um, you know, it happens all the damn time. This is not a unique case by any stretch. There are so many, there, there are, you know, so many people, the numbers are insane. You know, there's almost 500,000 people in jail right now awaiting trial in America. Well, 80% of them are awaiting trials when they've been convicted, but so call it 400,000. It's a big number. And people like Charnel, who didn't, who have no, haven't, haven't committed a crime. She had traffic tickets. What's going on here? It, there, there's a sense 
that's borne out by a case like Charnel's, um, by some of the brushes that each of us has uh, with the legal systems, that if you wind up on the wrong side of the system, then uh, no one's going to listen to you. No one's going to care. Like, you know, And it's very, very different if you have some financial resources, if you can afford a lawyer, if you can call a lawyer, if you can... Um, uh, if you can make bail or pay a fine. Uh, and if you're on the wrong side of this and you don't have resources, then uh, you're invisible, unheard, uh, just completely trodden upon. Uh, and then, the, and we've been almost conditioned not to listen because it's, and this is one reason I'm so grateful to you and the folks that you work with on these cases that you've been screaming, uh, look, these are human beings. This system is unduly punitive and unjust and a terrible use of taxpayer money and public resources. Uh, and now I feel like the momentum around this set of issues is higher than it's ever been. Uh, you I know, agree. and, and I feel like you're an interesting, um, uh, example where you were awoken by this article you said that you had some substance abuse problems when you were um young or challenges did you ever run it run into the law during that time uh you know i'm glad you asked i i distinctly remember uh, now i had so much hair back then andrew like my hair is still pretty thick but when i was a kid i grew it uh to absurd lengths and it was so thick in the summer that i almost i really couldn't see where i was going it was a just a almost like a hair helmet and um, and one time I bumped into a, a cop while I was smoking a joint. Um, and I remember him saying, put that shit out. And I was like, oh, yeah, sorry, officer. And I threw it on the ground and rubbed it out and kept moving. Um, that wasn't the only time I had an interaction with um, with police officers. But that one, I think there's a lot in that story. You know, I mean, I, I definitely feel... Uh, I, well, I feel certain that had I been in a different zip code with a different colored skin, that interaction would have ended very differently. And there would have been many others because I was always, you know, smoking weed, you know, and um, I was always around people who were doing other things. And it was like, there's no question that I would have had a very, I would have had an awful experience had I been you know, somewhere other than where I was. And I think that's one of the reasons why I can't leave this alone because it doesn't, it doesn't work for me that other kids um, who grew up and didn't do anything, you know, terrible, didn't do anything differently. I mean, you know, and by the way, I believe that drugs should be decriminalized and taxed, um, but they, you know, they were illegal back then. That cop could have arrested me and he didn't because I was on a, you know, I was on a nice street in a nice neighborhood and my skin was white. And that's, you know, I'm grateful. I don't want to be arrested, but I don't want anybody else to be arrested for that either. And so, yeah. You know, you, you see this too, Jason, every time something tragic happens to a person of color, uh, possibly caught on videotape, um, there's all of this clamoring around like, well, uh, here's what this person did wrong or this person was no saint. And I just hear this. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? It's like, you know, like that, the, you know, that if a different person in a different zip code with a different background did a similar behavior, like the person is alive and well, you know, <laughs> like that, like that's uh, it, uh, that, that stuff. Um, there's like a very natural human tendency that I try and be forgiving of uh, where people are kind of looking for 
the rationale or the justice sometimes in very, very blatantly unjust and brutal and, and inhuman behaviors. And it, it feels like this is a case where we've set up these institutions or organs uh, and they've gotten away from us. They've like gone to the extreme uh, in for, the, for a lot of the same reasons why a lot of things go wrong in American life is that there's money involved. Uh, so of the things that I ran on, one thing is to get rid of uh, for-profit prisons entirely because that just is a bananas concept. It's like, oh, let me see if I can make money off of the incarceration. It's like your incentives are so shitty in that case. It's like, oh, will I be spending more money on trying to rehabilitate uh, my prisoners and like treat them well? Or, or am I going to treat them like shit and... I actually profit more if they come back. Like, you know, and uh, like, if I get any money left over, I get to pay myself. I mean, that that is just a perverse situation that we have allowed to happen in the United States of America. The drug laws you were talking about with uh, Steve Lennon's story, the Rockefeller drug laws, I think it sounds like you believe that the drug laws are a huge source of this problem as well. Absolutely. I think that the war on drugs is the most disastrous uh, failed social policy since slavery and in many ways is actually just a continuation of slavery. Um, it's, it's cost uh, trillions of dollars by now. It hasn't had any positive impact on anything. Drug use hasn't gone down. It doesn't, there's no correlation that any social scientist can find between the drug war and, and drug abuse or drug use or whatever. And it's just, it's just a, um, it's a money machine. I mean, funded by taxpayers. Um, you know, interdiction is a joke. It's impossible to stop it. And people do drugs. They've always done drugs. Cavemen did drugs, right? Cavemen did peyote. Little children spin in a circle until they get dizzy because they like the feeling of being a little bit out of control, right? It's just, so I think, it, you know, I'm on the board of the Drug Policy Alliance and, you know, we espouse a philosophy called harm reduction. And harm reduction basically means first you accept that drugs always have been and always will be a part of society. And then you start sitting down and figuring out how do we minimize the amount of damage that drugs will do to the society. It's not by destabilizing foreign governments. It's not by defoliating forests. It's not by locking people up. We're still, we're still, we're still arresting over half a million people a year for pot in America. There's still people serving life in prison in America for pot. It's legal. Everybody's making money. It's nuts. So yeah, I mean, the, and the drug war, you touched on this before, Andrew, you're absolutely right. It's always used as the pretext and the excuse, right? Oh, well, we thought we smelled weed in the car or they looked like, uh, or we're going to go bust down Breonna Taylor's, you know, we're going to go do a raid like we're looking for Osama bin Laden because we heard there was some drugs in the house. There's probably drugs in your house. There's probably drugs in everybody's house. I don't know. I mean, I don't do drugs personally, but you know, most people do. And most people, have, and she didn't, by the way, but it's irrelevant if she did or didn't. One of my campaign pledges was that I was going to pardon uh, everyone who was in jail for a nonviolent marijuana related offense. And then I was going to high five on their way out of jail. Um, <laughs> and I was joking, I would do it on April 20th. <laughs> I would have done it any day. Uh, but, you know, I, I just thought that that was like a, you know, like a funny image of me high fiving folks on their way out of jail. Um, and they'd be like, wow, things have really changed. It's like, right on, there's like, there's, there's like, there's like a, an Asian president. He's just pardoned a bunch of nonviolent drug related offenders. And one of the 
jokes I told is like, those are the folks we should be pardoning, not, not these like well-connected rich weirdos who, who somehow, we should be pardoning folks who just shouldn't be in jail in the first place. And at this point, uh, marijuana is legal in, in a whole lot of the country. And we have people who are behind bars for doing things that people are doing openly, you know, in Colorado and other parts of the country at this point. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, uh, so that to me was like a no brainer that most Americans would agree with. Uh, and then you can go up the line. I, I was for decriminalizing opiates um, uh, and for safe consumption sites and other things, especially that plague because that has become widespread and it was essentially government facilitated. I mean, the government just turned a blind eye to the spread of opiates uh, in, in the form of Purdue Pharma and the rest of it. And, and then we criminalize it on top of it. It's like you, go, you show up and be like, hey, sorry, you're all addicted while well, we turned a blind eye to this stuff. It's like, let's throw you in jail. Like, uh, you know, I mean, like, like that stuff didn't make any sense to me. I talked to folks who swear by psychedelics as a treatment for... Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, and, and other conditions that many military vets struggle with. And th that made me a believer in the fact that we should be uh, letting folks experiment. Um, so the, the, the uh, criminalization of a lot of these substances has led to this overgrown system that has enabled uh, all sorts of brutal behaviors. Uh, and, and the examples you, you cite are dead on. Yeah, I mean, look, the war on drugs, we know now, and it's been confirmed by, I think it was Haldeman, right, um, who was Nixon's aide, uh, who said, as he was, you know, I guess, starting to look at his own mortality uh, several years ago, he said, look, Nixon didn't care about drugs. He didn't want a war on drugs. He wanted a war on black people and hippies, but he couldn't call it that. So we decided to call it a war on drugs. At the time, no one in America cared about drugs. It wasn't on the top, like, 50 issues that, that people cared about. Um, and so they had to figure out a way to make people care about it. So they, they came up with this marketing thing, the war on drugs. And then because police departments also, in the way I understand it, originally didn't care about drugs. They didn't want to go arresting low level people for stuff like that. So they created these incentives, right, where they would give these bonuses and extra equipment and military equipment and all this other stuff. And um, they created quotas for these um, local uh, police departments to to make these drug arrests in order to incentivize them to do something that they didn't want to do. I think they were preferred and probably a lot of them would still prefer to be out there solving, you know, violent crimes and helping to prevent violent crimes as opposed to, you know, just wasting taxpayer money and inflicting unspeakable cruelty on people who may look something like the children, you know, their own teenagers at home or whatever. But but that's not the way it is. And it's it's got to go back in the other direction because it's just freaking wrong. It's always going to be wrong. And then when you look at other countries that have done it differently, the results that they've had are profound. Portugal being probably the best example of that, where they decriminalized all drugs in 2000 and nothing bad happened. Nothing. You know, <laughs> shockingly, right? Nothing bad happened. Overdoses went down. Like, you know, there, there are a lot of positive results. Uh, I, I saw that data too and became a believer um, or at least a huge believer in the fact that you'd have to really exert yourself to justify why it would not also reduce overdose deaths, reduce consumption here in the States. It's again, it's like that, uh, the question, it's like, are our people just worse than other people, <laughs> other people's people? <laughs> like, that, that's like, like you have to kind of go there to justify a lot of what we're doing. You know, I did a presentation for the Democratic Policy Committee in the Senate many years ago, and I said, 
you know, I talked to them about the fact that, you know, what, how would society have benefited if I had been arrested instead of gone to rehab, which I did, right? I ended up building a company, employing dozens of people, paying lots of taxes, creating some good stuff, some good music, helping to create some good music that people liked, to, had a lot of enjoyment uh, uh, listening to. Um, you know, it's like I didn't need, and, and these other people don't need to be arrested. They need, well, most of them don't need anything. They need to be left alone, right? And the few that actually have a substance abuse problem, and my problem wasn't pot um, at the end, you know, those people need to, uh, you know, maybe give, get some treatment and, and then keep it moving. But it's a medical problem. It's a personal problem, unless you put somebody else in harm's way. You know, if you get behind the wheel of an airplane or you're behind the, in the cockpit of an airplane, you're flying around high as a kite, that's not okay, right? It's not okay to drive a tractor either. But, you know, if you're, if you're doing it in your house, it's none of our freaking business. And I got an idea. I talk about this on my podcast a lot, a wrongful conviction, right? Like, what can you do? Well, first of all, you know what you can do if you're sitting here listening and getting angry as I am again? Um, you can go serve on juries, right? When you get the jury duty notice that you're going to get sometime, don't throw it away. Don't come up with an excuse. And I'm not going to say I've never done that because that would be hypocritical, but I feel badly for having done it. I won't do it again. I'll tell you that much. I did it a long time ago. Um, you know, and I had a legitimate excuse, but in theory, in, in, in you know, in retrospect, I, sh you know, I would have preferred to have gone. Um, but that being said, you know, and you're allowed a certain number of deferments, whatever it is. But the fact is that don't do that. Go and serve on a jury and you can exercise your, uh, um, you know, your rights as a juror. You know, you can be, you can do um, what's that called? Civil disobedience or be conscious object or whatever the hell the pro proper name for it is. But you can just vote not to convict. If you see an injustice like that, you see a Stephen Lennon or something like that, and you go, this is out of whack. Like, I'm not, I, I, you know, I can't support a system that doesn't make sense. Even you might think, you know, I mean, I was called on a case once and they rejected me as a juror because who's going to take me as a juror anyway? I wish they would if they look up my Especially background. after that last statement, <laughs> that they could just play this recording and be like, let's reject <laughs> right. this guy for sure. <laughs> but the fact is that I remember being in the courtroom, this huge ornate courtroom in New York City, and, the, and there was 100 jurors waiting to be called. And the judge looked like a very regal in his robes. And it was a guy who was accused of selling, I think, a tenth of a gram of cocaine in a school zone, right? Which, by the way, all of Manhattan is a school zone. There's no place you can go that's not a thousand feet from some sort of school. It could be a ballet school. It could be a secretarial school. It could be anything. They still count it. And they count it through the building, too. Like, I remember that, <laughs> that, that discussion, right? Like, you know, there, there was a case, not this case, but there was a case where, where the lawyer said, well, you had to go this way and this way around the corner. They said, no, no, you go through the building diagonally. It's less than a thousand feet. But this guy was accused. It was a tenth of a gram. A tenth of a gram. It's hard to think of anything that weighs a tenth of a gram, like a pin, a little pin. Lady's probably weighs about that. It's, it's, it's so tiny. It's almost, you know, it's almost, anyway, whatever. So that being said, um, it's, it's an incredible waste of taxpayer resources. But I do think, and it, it goes back to the wrongful conviction stuff too. Um, you know, when I started that podcast, my goal was to help create a more educated jury pool so that people don't go in there and just believe whatever they're being told. Because a lot of bad stuff goes on in our system. There are reverse incentives. You talked about it with the private prisons. There are reverse incentives throughout our system, right? There are 
even, look, even if everybody in the system was, was well-meaning and was, you know, had slept well the night before and wasn't, you know, you know, basically wasn't human, right? But everybody operated the way they should. There would still be mistakes, but the problem is it's not like that, right? The, the system is an adversarial system. Prosecutors are trying to get convictions. Defense lawyers are trying to get their clients out, but it's a mismatch all throughout. And it starts being a mismatch the minute you're, you get arrested, like you said. Now let's say you're in jail, like Sharnell Mitchell. But, and maybe that's not the best example because she wasn't even charged with a crime. But let's say you're charged with a crime. And you're looking at sitting in jail for a year waiting trial or pleading guilty. Well, you're probably going to plead guilty. Then you're going to have a record forever. Then you're going to get busted on probation, you know, uh, violations, which could be the most benign things, right? They call them technical parole violations, forgetting to report a change of address, going to, you know, you can be crossing a state line to pick up your son or daughter, and that could be a violation. You could, there's a million of them. You could eat a poppy seed bagel and fail a drug test. That's a thing, by the way. That's a real thing. Um, any of these things, you can miss an appointment with your parole officer right back to jail. So um, the, the whole thing is designed to fail. And again, you know, if you think about here's here's the, here's an aspect that I think is underreported. You may not even know this, Andrew, and you know a lot. But one of the craziest things when you're trying somebody in court and they're in jail awaiting trial, they get picked up at the jail around three in the morning and brought to a holding cell in the courthouse, typically, where they wait hours and hours. They don't get fed because they missed the breakfast in prison. And then they're sitting there for hours until they come to court. They don't get dropped off again until around midnight that night, back in their cell. So if they can sleep after this traumatic process, they're sleeping maybe three hours. Now you're coming to court. You haven't had a haircut because you're in fucking prison. You're in jail. You, you know, you, you, you're a mess, right? And you're there. You're trying to fight for your life with a public defender who's probably working on hundreds of other cases who may not even know your name. And, you know, and the other problem, which is something you can do something about, is that studies have shown that around 80% of people have a preconceived notion that whoever's in the defendant's chair must have done something wrong or they wouldn't be there. So all of the odds are stacked against the defendant. And if I can do something through this podcast and through, you know, my work and being on your show, which, you know, thanks again for having me to help tip those odds back towards fairness, then, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's my calling That's what I'm here for. There is a very human tendency to think, well, uh, this person must have done something wrong, like because you just don't want to believe that the system is so blatantly unjust. Uh, though now we have so much evidence that the system is blatantly unjust, a uh, certain percentage of the time, and that percentage is higher than any of us would like it to be. Uh, and that if you're on the wrong end of this, then you just get your life destroyed. And because everyone has this preconception, well, you must have done something wrong. It's like, you know, like there's. Uh, at this point, we have to wake up to the fact that if there's something going wrong, it's that we've let the system go berserk. We've let a system go berserk that's just treading on people right and left. And unfortunately, it's treading most often among uh, it's on people that have the least ability to uh, counteract it, to deploy resources so that they can uh, actually fight it out in a legitimate way. Uh, it's one reason why what you do is so important is you're taking people that don't have those resources and you're helping them. You're helping amplify their stories. You're helping them with legal uh, 
advice and and uh, folks that are actually going to get into the guts of these cases and say, look, you know, there, there's no reason why this person needs to be behind bars or this person was treated unfairly. So we are at a cultural moment when it feels like the world has come your way, Jason. Uh, you know, you started started this work 27 years ago, and now here we are 27 years later saying we need to make changes. What are you excited about? First, would you agree that this is the highest level of energy and momentum you've seen for meaningful reformation of drug uh, laws and uh, reformation of the criminal justice system? Um, and what do those changes look like? If it's true that at this point, people on both sides of the aisle agree that we need to, to make real changes. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely people on both sides of the aisle. I mean, you know, the, I'm working with, uh, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like um, a, a crazy uh, um, combination, but I'm working with the Stand Together Foundation, which is a foundation that um, was started by Chase Koch, um, you know, who, you know, that, then they are libertarians, that family, right? And so, um, there are certainly a lot of issues we don't see eye to eye on, but on criminal justice reform, they are they're they're on it. I mean, they are not playing games, and they they see things I think largely through the same lens that we do, and they're very effective because um, they just have terrific people working there, and they are you know they're 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 going to be change makers. But I think there are there are so many incredible people. Um, in this fight now, um, you know, I mentioned Alec Katsanis. I mentioned some of the organizations that I'm, I'm working with, um, you know, FAMM.org, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, the Drug Policy Alliance, the Legal Action Center in New York is a fantastic organization on whose board I also serve. Um, there are, um, you know, there, there, there's movement in a number of areas. I think that the um, abolition of cash bail is, is a, you know, it's a slow process. It has to go city by city, county by county, state by state. But it's happening. Um, the you know there are only two, there are two. Uh, it's crazy. You know there are only two countries in the world that have money uh, for profit bail bonds uh, uh, systems. Did you know that? And the other no, one. it's us and who? I give you a bonus prize. Yeah, <laughs> you can figure it out. The other Philippines is the only other one. Um, and, probably and that's, brought it to them. We probably like, hey, this is a great idea. You yeah, we exported it. it. Yeah, <laughs> but but you touched on this before, Andrew. The decriminalization of pot is, you know, it's it's interesting. When I started working on that stuff in '93, somebody very wise told me, you know, it takes 30 years to change anything in Washington, and I was like, well, if that's the case, we're uh, ahead of schedule. But so. Uh, so the decriminalization and the destigmatization of pot, I think, is a, is a very, very exciting development. And kudos to Governor Polis and Governor, um, who else just did this? Was it, uh, it was Inslee, right? Who just um, granted clemency. Um, Polis in Colorado. There was another state out west where they just granted, you know, sort of thousands of clemencies to low level. Love it. Uh, Look at that. They're taking yeah. a page out of like the, the Yang campaign promises book. Not even Any clemency pardons. Yeah, pardon them. Yeah. Any yeah, governors yeah. around the country, just freaking follow the lead. Everyone will love you. Pardon the folks who are in jail for nonviolent drug related offenses uh, and you'll be a hero. Yeah. Also the ones who are out, you know, like they need to be pardoned as well because their records need to be Pardon expunged. Too. It's ridiculous. That's right. 
Exactly. And Andrew yeah, will meet them you. outside with a with a uh, you know with a high five and I'll a, take a credit for whatever you did. <laughs> the governor, <laughs> let the governor be there and do the high fives. You know, even in New York City, we have you know we have our share of problems here, but the you know the number of drug arrests has declined uh, uh, drastically, which I'm encouraged by. Um, I think that the you know the Innocence Project has been behind uh, a, a tremendous number of reforms. Of, uh, of practices and, and even some, um, you know, passing legislation as of other organizations like the Anti-Recidivism Coalition and others who are, are instituting fairer and better practices. There's a movement away from these draconian sentences. I mean, what, you know, it, it was not that long ago that the Miller decision in the Supreme Court, the Brian Stevenson one, abolished uh, mandatory life in prison for, you know, kids who are as young as like, like 12 for non-homicide offenses. I mean, no other country does that. Nobody. My friend Ian Manuel, who was sentenced to life without parole, he was 13 for a non-violent, for, for, sorry, not non-violent, for a non-homicide offense. He was not innocent, but he was 13. And, you know, he ended up serving 18 years in solitary confinement, 26 years total. I mean, oh, it's insane. No. No, he's, he, but he's a terrific guy. He's doing really well now. He's got a book coming out. I'm very, very proud of him. And Brian Stevenson, you know, won his case. Brian is a great hero of mine. So, you know, but the, there is um, there is movement towards, you know, eliminating these insane sentences. I think the death penalty, I'm encouraged by that as well. I mean, the, I, I hate the death penalty. Um, everyone should hate the death penalty, in my view. Um, you know, I've seen too many cases where even the victim's family went and begged for the, for the, the, the killer of their loved one not to be executed. Didn't matter. You know, we're so bloodthirsty in this country. And, you know, it was, the, it was in Missouri that the, I don't remember who it was. It might have been the attorney general who said, yeah, it, you know, evidence of innocence should not uh, be a factor. It doesn't, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and I don't want to name names or anything. But the fact is that those kind of phrases get uttered in courtrooms in America. I mean, it's like, and it, you know, I think it was, wasn't it Scalia who said something like that? Then? It was like uh, um, that the... Um, they basically, the basic idea was that the evidence of innocence shouldn't stand in the way of procedures, right? You must adhere to procedures. Um, and it, it has to be, that's more important. There are a lot of people in America that just take solace behind uh, just like the rule and application of the rule. It's like, well, that's the rule, you know? And, and it's like, come on, you, you, like, you know that uh, playing this rule, uh, is not the right thing and there's like all oh, those are rules there's like a very very strong rules are rules contingent in in america and that's one of the problems here is that we put these rules on the books that have enabled all of these uh abuses uh and uh and there's no coming back from the death penalty you know i mean at this point we have to look up and say well geez we've found people that were wrongfully convicted on death row on people who were wrongfully convicted you know i mean imagine you get there too late well well, it's like a, there's no reversing that one no and, and i'm going to throw something at you right now which i think will shock a lot of people which is that there's my my uh, my friend josh dubin who is the host of the junk science podcast which is part of our our network um you can find it under the wrongful conviction feed but he um he's representing a guy in florida named james daly 
James Daly has been on death row for about 35 years in Florida. The state of Florida tried to execute him last year, but there was a stay. A court granted a stay. But James Daly is obviously innocent. It is such a, the New York Times did a cover story about this case because of the, the jailhouse snitch who was involved. This was one of the most notorious jailhouse snitches in the history of America. He apparently 37 different people felt compelled to confess their crimes to him, even though he was a known snitch in jail, right? He just happened to be walking by uh, Mr. Daly's cell with the jail. Daly just felt like spilling his guts to this guy. So he'd never met in his life. And they weren't even the same part of the, of the prison or jail. But here's the thing about the James Daly case. He's a military veteran. He had nothing to do with this crime. Everybody knows it. The real killer has confessed in affidavits in every which way. And yet the state of Florida is desperate to execute him. And here's the craziest thing. If Florida executes Mr. Daly, he will be the hundredth person put to death, put to death by the state of Florida. Now, how many people do you think have been exonerated from Florida's death row? 29. Let me make it easy for you. 29 people have been exonerated from death row. Now, it is so damn difficult to get exonerated from anywhere, but from death row, it's even harder. So even if we accept the ridiculously, well, the, 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 the false premise that Florida, that everyone that Florida has executed was guilty, and we know that's not true because of Jesse Tafaro and because of others, I'm coming up with names right now, I'm struggling, but there are other names I can think of in Florida of people who were innocent who were executed on death row. Jesse Tafaro is definitely one of them. <clears throat> but even if all those people were guilty, they're not even batting 700. And yet we continue to tinker with the machinery of death. What are we doing? How, how, how can you have a system like that? If, it's what Brian Stevenson says, if one out of every 10 planes crashed, nobody would fly. In Florida, it's three out of 10. And yet they're so desperate to execute James Daly. I, and, and by the way, here's another thing. Florida would save if they, if they commuted everybody on Florida's death row to life in prison, they would save $51 million a year in taxpayer money just by doing that. The death penalty is expensive, it's arbitrary, it's capricious, it's racist, and it is a fact that we execute innocent people in this country, and it's nev that's never gonna change. It might go up or down by degrees, but it's never gonna change, and as long as we have the death penalty, we'll continue to do that. That's another thing this country has to get better at, Jason, is just to say, look, we screwed up. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 you get a sense that that's one of the reasons why they don't want to exonerate James Daly or other people uh, is they don't want to be like, well, turns out this person's been in jail for a while and like we fucked that one up. You know, it's like, <laughs> like, like, that, like that there's like a real unwillingness. Half the time it wasn't even you. Half the time it was like some other freaking like, you know, attorney or like whoever the heck it was, like district attorney. It's like not even your screw up. And, and they still just don't want to be, <laughs> they don't just want to be like, hey, our bad, our no. bad. There just needs to be a lot more responsibility taking on that side. I think that would that would improve our lives so much if people who are in positions of power just admitted to screwing up and then were like, yeah, that's our bad. Like this person should not be in jail. This person should not be on death row. Like you just don't get that much in American life. Uh, like that there's like more likely for people to want to continue uh, the screw up and just be like, yeah, it, it's, you know, like, like move on, move on. Nothing to see here. This was well done. Then to just be like, yeah, that was our fault. It's even worse than that because they, um, in many, 
you know, I don't, I don't know to say the majority, but in many, many cases, they will protect wrongful convictions, even though they know they're wrong, even though they've been proven wrong, even though a higher court has overturned the conviction. And in many cases, they'll try to get those people to take an Alfred plea or some other plea just so they can maintain their perfect record or whatever the hell they have, even though they know that they were wrong. They might have known they were wrong in the first place, but now they've been proven wrong, but they'll still fight. And there's reasons for that, right? There's no prosecutorial accountability. They don't face any consequences for, the, for their misdeeds or, their, or even breaking the law. So, and, and in fact, again, there's another reverse incentive, which is that they, um, you know, they climb the ladder typically by having very, you know, uh, high rates of convictions. And so they want to get somebody. And, you know, if you're it, then so be it. Then they go home and eat spaghetti with their kids and, you know, talk about the, you know, the day and then keep it moving. And it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's just all freaking wrong. I mean, there's that. And then there's another issue, which I get asked about all the time, which I think is important for people to know, is that if you're wrongfully convicted and you serve four years or 15 years or 40 years or 27 years, like so many of the people that I've interviewed on my show have done, there's no guarantee of compensation. There are, only, there are 18 states that have no compensation statutes and the Innocence Project is leading the charge to fix that. Um, and we're fixing it state by state. But even among the states that do have it, in some of the places, it's woefully low. I genuinely didn't know that there was compensation even possible in, in some of the states. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that there's no compensation in a lot of places. Um, it actually surprises me that they, they actually like, well, you've been in jail for 10 years, are, are bad. Like, I mean, it's the least people deserve. I mean, what the hell would someone accept for 10 years of their freedom? You'd have to get into like exorbitant sums for anyone to even like, you know, imagine it. I mean, there's nothing you can do to give someone their life back, their youth back, those years back. No, not the trauma, the whole thing. Now, one other thing I, I want to try to squeeze in here is that I think it's so important that people learn about the, the quote unquote sciences in the courtroom. That's why we started this show called Junk Science, Wrongful Conviction Junk Science. I know I sound like a broken record, but I'm really proud of this show because in it, each week we examine a different forensic discipline that so many people have been bamboozled by shows like CSI to believe are, you know, gospel. We cover everything from arson, right? These arson investigators who, who basically know absolutely nothing. You can be a trained arson investigator with a 40-hour correspondence course, basically, right? And the same is true for some other for the for blood spatter. Same thing. You want to be a blood spatter analyst? 40 hours. Don't take my advice. Don't do it, by the way. Um, but the fact is that, you know, you, you have to train, what is it, six months to become a barber or a manicurist? I mean, and yet these people are in court testifying. They don't know anything. But it goes further than that. You know, there's, there's, um, there's, uh, um, there's boot print analysis, but even fingerprints, even fingerprints, which we all think about fingerprints, right? Fingerprint analysis is almost totally subjective. We like not to believe that, but it's true. And don't get me started on shaken baby syndrome. If you end up on a jury on a shaken baby syndrome case, you really have to be a skeptic. John Jones, Melissa Kaliszynski, there's so many people I know that are in prison in America for, for supposedly shaking a baby to death. Because again, it goes back to the psychology. We don't want to believe that babies could just die, but sometimes it happens. But you know, that, we won't talk about that for a second, but the fingerprints, right? Remember the case in Madrid all those years ago when it wasn't that long ago, actually. I think it was less than a decade ago where all the, all the bombings on the trains in Madrid and it was in the 2000s for sure, but or 2010. 
191 people were killed one morning in Madrid. Terrible series of bombings on commuter trains and buses. And, you know, pure pandemonium set in, of course. And they, you know, they got fingerprints off of one of the devices. And they put it in the worldwide, you know, database or whatever the hell. And they went to different, you know, Interpol, all these different organizations got involved. We covered this on the show. They covered it much better. I'm going to give you the capsule summary. <clears throat> and ultimately, the FBI found a match of a guy. I think he was a lawyer. He lived in Oregon. And um, they uh, arrested him, charged him with these bombings. Turns out he had never been to Spain. Not only he had never been to Spain, he didn't have a passport. But the FBI insisted that he did it. They had three or four different analysts that looked at the fingerprints, said it was an absolute definite match, certainly 100%, no doubt about it. This is the guy that did it, blah, blah, blah. And finally, the Spanish authorities were like, you people need to get your shit together. This ain't the guy. He's never been to Spain. We don't know what you're talking about. These are not his fingerprints. It's, but, but you know, in a case that high profile with multiple senior experts like that, now think about it, you're in a small town somewhere, right? And you have the local, you know, one of the local officers or, or people in the work in the department somewhere who's assigned to be a fingerprint, you know, analyst. Fingerprints, you know, it's if you do a fingerprint on an ink pad and another one on an ink pad, maybe you could take a microscope and you could look at it and you could go, you know, those that's a pretty close match. But if I if I'm on your, your neck or something, right, and it's you're sweating or I'm sweating or the skin or you have skin at your hard skin or soft skin or you're muscular or you're or you're chubby, or you're this, or you're that. It's all smudgy and weird. It doesn't make a full, perfect fingerprint like we would like to think it does. That's not the way it works. And therefore, that evidence is bogus as fuck. And yet, it's used. And the thing about courtrooms is, this is so nuts, right? I'm glad I finally got to this. So the thing about courtrooms is that our legal system is almost the opposite of science. Because the le in, in our courts, they will admit evidence that science has proven is false because it's been admitted before, right? So bite mark evidence, like bite mark evidence is ridiculous. If you're ever in a case with bite mark evidence, if there's a lot of other evidence, okay, maybe you look at it. But if that's what they got, throw that shit out the window. That bite mark evidence is a joke. And yet it's allowed in courtrooms in all 50 states just because it's always been allowed in courtrooms in all 50 states. So. They just go, well, some other judge in 1968 allowed it, so I guess we're going to allow it too. And it's ridiculous. Yeah, biting on an imperfect surface, you know, the, 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 the studies have shown, they did studies with the top 100 forensic odontologists in the country. And in many cases, they couldn't even tell. They, they thought it was a human bite mark. It turned out it was an animal or it was, <laughs> it was you know, they have no idea because odontology is, is basically your full set of teeth. It was created as a protocol so that if there's a plane crash or something and your body is in smithereens, they can take your whole set of teeth and go to your dentist's office and voila, they know it's you and okay, fine, or the building collapses. But then they take that versus somebody biting down on an imperfect surface or a couple of teeth and then yet you have some quack idiot who goes on the thing and says, I'm certified in forensic odontology and I can guarantee you this is Andrew's teeth on this dead body here, which was found in a swamp, you know, 17 days later. It's 
ridiculous, but it passes as science. And we need to change that too. You know, it's that old saying, I think it was an English um, jurist or somebody who said it's better that a hundred guilty men go free than the one innocent should suffer. We may disagree on the percentages, but we can, we can do something about it, but we need everybody to do it. So listen to the damn show, get educated, and serve on juries. If you get picked up and charged with a crime, or even if you get picked up and brought in for, for a, 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 an interview, and they want you to, Andrew, we just want to talk to you about this crime. You don't know anything about it, but we think you might be able to help. And most people want to help. I grew up you know, respecting the, the, the uniform. I wanted to be a cop when I was a kid. I still respect the uniform. But you know, good cops, of course, I respect them. But the thing about it is, don't say a word, except for my name is Andrew and I want a lawyer. You can say your full name if you want to, that's not a problem. But, and I want a lawyer and then stop talking until your lawyer gets will be used against you. And they're allowed to lie in the interrogation room. Very important for you to know that. They can tell you, listen, Andrew, you seem like a nice guy, but we got your fingerprints on the murder weapon. We got a guy across the hall who says you did it. Me, there's nobody across the hall. We have a video of you leaving the apartment building right after the murder and you're sitting there going what but they're allowed to lie so yeah don't say a word so if someone wants to help uh aside from uh plugging into the um resources that you're providing like is, is there a particular organization uh or place you should go a particular way that an activist uh can uh move the needle on something yeah, I would encourage people to go to innocenceproject.org, uh, go to famm.org, uh, drugpolicyalliance.org. Uh, if you want to donate to help people uh, coming home from prison, uh, innocent people, uh, or people who've served these ridiculous sentences for minor crimes, et cetera, uh, there's a great organization called The First 72 Plus. That's the first seven, number 72 and then plus.org. Um, can you do the plus on the dot org? I think so. But anyway, if you Google for 70 plus, it'll come up. Um, and by the way, uh, please follow me on Instagram. It's at it's Jason Flom, ITS Jason Flom. I'm posting about these things all the time and you can learn more that way. Um, and of course, uh, download the, the podcast. But uh, yeah, and there and then, you know, you know, just learn and, and, and show up and get involved and vote. Vote, 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 vote in not only a presidential race, but vote in your local elections. Learn about the judges who are running. Learn about the prosecutors who are running. Learn about the, the assembly people, anybody throughout the system, because so, your, your vote matters. There's been a, there, it was a couple of years ago, there was a race in Virginia that ended up in a dead heat, a tie. The same exact number of people voted on both sides. So don't give me that my vote doesn't matter shit, because it's not true. Vote in your local elections. Vote in people who are going to do the right thing, because they're out there, but they need your support. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for fighting for humanity for so long uh, in a way that was not prominent or visible, uh, but now it's getting the prominence it deserves in American thought and American life. Hopefully we can change some of these systems and rules so that they start working better for us and that we can actually start feeling like uh, our justice system is a justice system as opposed to uh, a system that right now uh, is serving serving multiple ends that unfortunately have very little to do with justice. But appreciate the out of your dedication over these years and for your helping free people that should not have been in jail in the first place and bringing the, those cases to light. You're you're like a no 
uh, you're the equivalent of a saint to many of these people that you have helped free. It's one reason why they're so indebted to you. Um, and we're all indebted to you. So thank you. And let's hope that your vision for how we can reform the system becomes a reality as soon as possible. Well, I appreciate your giving me this, this platform to speak to your audience and uh, I appreciate all these things that you've been doing and I'm looking forward to working closely with you uh, to make this uh, country fairer and better for everyone. You and me both, Jason, really hats off to you. So incredible uh, work you've done and so glad to be connected with you. 